That's definitely staying in the podcast. You can do some crazy effects with that. No, put some echo or some reverb on that. Hi, everyone. Uh, you're tuning in to another edition of Some Things Technical. And with us today, as always, is Matthew Gamble. Hello. And Robert Day. Hey. And me, I'm Robin Claney. And why don't we get started? Let's do some follow-up. So, two podcasts ago, Matt asked us uh, at Some Things Technical about what we recommended for RSS feed readers. And it sounds like Matt has some uh, reporting back to do of how... Uh, what he's been using RSS for, and uh, and whether it's been working out with him, and whether our app recommendations were stupid. Yeah. Before I uh, say what I, I, I use and how I'm using it, I just want to go over how I looked at blogs before I had an RSS reader, and it was very archaic. I had four favorites in my Safari favorites bar, and they were the five blogs I followed, and I would check them every day. And that's how I checked my blogs, and that's very bad. Uh, so with the recommendations, uh, mostly from Robin, I went with a reader and it's improved my blog following life immensely. I've subscribed to like 10 additional feeds and it's kept my brain organized as the feed number increases. So it's scaling well, which I really enjoy. Um, you know, I also wasn't able to like favorite posts without like saving like the permanent links uh, so starring in Reader is great. I've been making use of that feature. Reader is, of course, the only uh, one I've tried, <laughs> actually. I invested the five bucks and just went whole hog into it. And uh, I don't mind it. I mean, I'm not saying that's the only one I'm ever going to use, but for now it's meeting all my needs, and uh, it's definitely scaled well with me adding new blogs, and that's definitely the reason I like it. And uh, you want to talk a little bit about which feeds you were following at first and then which feeds you added? So the feeds I was following before were, uh, so let me just make sure I get them all, like Marco.org, Daring Fireball, Any Central, uh, David Smith's blog, I think one more, which I can't really remember, because I've since deleted them out of my Safari favorites bar. And uh, the ones I've added, some of them I actually have no idea what they are, I just added them because people recommended them. Um, but the ones I can actually remember adding were like Furbo, so uh, Craig Hockenberry, I finally added, uh, uh, what's uh, Syracuse's blog? Hypercritical. I think he has one called, called Fat Bits, too. So maybe he renamed it to Hypercritical. I, I feel like Fat Bits is still out there as well, so that's maybe worth a Google search. Uh, Syracuse has a lot of great writing published, and he's one of the people, when I'm just looking for something to read, I sometimes uh, take a look at some of his older stuff. But anyway, so those are the ones... Uh, like two or three that I can remember that I actually added, but the ones, the other ones that I've added that I didn't actually, I don't actually know the people. Uh, I will, you know, I will learn to either enjoy them and keep following them or not enjoy them. Uh, I think like another one was like Dave Wiskus's blog. I think he has a blog. I think I added that one. Uh huh. Stuff like that. It sounds like you read it regularly. <laughs> exactly. I don't know when he, when I just go down the list of stuff that's new uh, in in the unread category and reader, and then I read them, and if I like it. I favorite it, or mm -hmm. if I don't have time to read something, I'll favorite it, and then I'll go back and read it later, and that's, you know, how it works. It's improved my blog reading immensely, like I said. So uh, I think Rob was uh, hinting at a really interesting point there, and that's that 
using an RSS reader, it sort of uh, abstracts away and makes you think less about who you're actually reading since you don't, you know, there's not that mindfulness of going to the website. Interesting change to the reading experience because you, uh, you I, I oftentimes am not thinking so much about exactly who's posting. Um, and then what's really interesting is finding out, uh, seeing which voices, you know, who you can tell, oh, I know exactly who I'm reading here just because their voice is so strong and you can just tell from uh, the types of things that they're saying, like who it is that's, that's writing. And I find that probably the bloggers who get followed the most are the people with the strongest voices. Like, so the people you are, are most recognizable are also the people that I, I, I bet there's a really strong correlation between that and, uh, and the number of followers that they have. How about you, Rob? Uh, I know that you've shown me that you use unread. I don't think we, I, I've ever heard uh, exactly who you're following and, and how you're using RSS and how it's working out for you. I follow the same essential crowd as Matt. Uh, some editions would be Mike Ash I follow. I like some of his posts. Uh, I follow uh, Matt Thompson. So those are two other ones that he didn't list. Yep. So the rest of the core is pretty much the same. And how is uh, uh, re- uh, Unread working out for you? I no complaints with it. You know, there's like fun talk. He basically uh, took a job, a full-time position at a different company. So I figure... You know, frequent development will not be happening on this anymore, but it, it suits my purposes now, so no complaints. From what you showed me, it's it's actually really similar to uh, to Reader. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll say a little bit about my own RSS usage. Um, so I've been using RSS. Oh man, I don't, I don't even you know. Darren Fireball, I think, started around two thousand and three, and Net Newswire came out around the same time. Um, and I didn't get it at first. It, it took me a while, and I actually, you guys have both done it right, which is to just. And this is what I tell people now: is uh, just take the websites that you read, you know, essentially every day, and only add those uh, to your RSS feed reader, and then just use that as your way of. Uh, of checking those blogs and then sort of slowly add to it. Um, I didn't do that at first. And what I did is I'm like, I, I just added all this stuff in there and then it just became this pile of stuff that I didn't want to read. Just thinking, Oh, here, I'll add another feed because I, you know, I'd like to be up to date on this stuff. And it really, uh, if it becomes overwhelming, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't work very well. And so now what I do is I have just a few that I read every day, I think uh, perhaps even under five, uh, mainly the same ones you guys have listed. Uh, I recently have added Michael Size blog to the ones that I check every day, and I, 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 that would be a recommendation to you guys for one to check out, uh, link in the show notes. But so then I, in addition to those five, I probably have about 150 um, RSS feed subscribe to and that stuff I just skim and look for something interesting and you know it, it, that works pretty well so uh, another piece of follow-up uh, we spent some time talking about the Hydra window manager last week and first of all I have the name now and I even looked up how to pronounce it and uh, so it, it's this is the now it's named after it used to be called Hydra and now it's named after the hammer of Thor and the name is Mjolnir. That's a, I looked up a video on, on uh, YouTube uh, that said it, and that's how I got the pronunciation. Of course you did. Yep. And, um, and that's spelt 
M, J, O, and then the O technically has an umlaut, but M, J, O, L, I, uh, L, N, I, R. It's named after their hammer, Thor, and uh, now it's officially been released under the new name. I took a brief look at it, but I haven't tried it out. Um, but some interesting changes that I noticed is that, uh, so it uses the Luau scripting language, um, which is a, a really lightweight language that's ideal for scripting. Is that how you pronounce it? I think it's Lua. Lua? Let's say Lua. Yeah, I've been corrected many times in that. By the way, you shouldn't trust me for your pronunciation. I would recommend Googling the uh, the, the Mjolnir video yourself and <laughs> see. I've probably butchered it just in the time between listening and saying it again. Um, so an interesting change is, I, I haven't tested this, this out, but what it seems like he's done is before... It included a uh, Lua interpreter in the application binary. And so now what I think he's done is he recommends that you download, uh, you, you first download his binary, and, or let me reverse that. You first install Lua on your machine, uh, for example, by Homebrew, and then you install Lua's uh, package manager, and then you install the application, then his packages are namespaced as Mjolnir then dot uh, a package name. So it's like something like a Mjolnir dot hotkey, Mjolnir dot window, uh, Mjolnir dot application. And so then this is how you extend Mjolnir. So he's kind of piggybacking on the existing uh, package management system. So the big change here is that now there, you know, now there's more setup, but there's also a package manager. Um, so a package manager facilitates the sharing of code. Um, so like uh, uh, other package managers are Gems for Ruby uh, and NPM for Node. And the ideal part about a package manager is then you can allow the package manager to update the packages. So if somebody, if the maintainer of the package updates the source code, then you can get those updates by running commands uh, with the package manager like NPM update. Um, and it also uh, it handles having a shared repository of the code, so ideally other people can contribute to the packages and everything. So this is just sort of a really interesting um, change here is that he's increased the cost of installation and setup, uh, but then is hope, in my own analysis is then hoping to gain that back in uh, being able to facilitate updating packages and uh, community contributions and all that. So just thought that was interesting. And um, I'm looking forward to trying the new version now that it's released. And the, the website is mjolnir.io or M-J-O-L-N-I-R.io. Rolls off the tongue. Rolls right off the tongue, yeah. Um, so I think that we'll go to our, our first uh, news topic. Um, so a really hot one has happened these last in the last 48 hours or so, and that's that a, a group has released a version of Markdown called Standard Markdown. So originally Markdown was released with instructions in how to use it. Um, so it says like to make a header, um, you know, either put a, a bunch of hyphens under the text or put a number sign in front of the text for the header and for a list either use a hyphen or an asterisk um, and then a more in-depth syntax page and then the main implementation is a Perl script 
uh, that works as uh, very much like a, bunch, a lot of different Unix utilities where you pipe in the text that's in Markdown and then it outputs to standard in the text um, as HTML. And back when Markdown was released, it was uh, this was a common approach for blog plugins. So this would allow you to cut and paste Markdown into a blog's the blogging software's text field, and then have it display in the site uh, as HTML. And behind the scenes, the Perl uh, text processor was uh, the Markdown text processor would process that HTML, uh, the Markdown, and convert it to HTML. Um, and so now, sort of the situation that standard Markdown is addressing is, so now there are Markdown parsers in Ruby, there's Markdown parsers in JavaScript, there's Markdown parsers in C, uh, there's Markdown par processors that are uh, proprietary and part of websites like GitHub, uh, Discourses, the new forum software from the same people from Stack Overflow is, um, uses heavy use of Markdown. Um, and, so it, let's maybe even 70% of all text fields that you input on the internet support some form of Markdown, and there's uh, almost as many different implementations of Markdown. And now since they've been recoded and there's not like a comprehensive way of confirming that your, uh, your Markdown processor exactly matches the Markdown spec, um, there's all these subtle differences between how the Markdown, various Markdown implementations convert the text from Markdown into HTML. And, um, and then on top of that, there's been a bunch of different features that people have added to Markdown, such as footnotes is a big one. Um, yeah, and uh, code blocks for GitHub flavored Markdown. Uh, they've added fence code blocks. Um, so, yeah, so it's an interesting topic and perhaps the most heated part, but also perhaps the least interesting, is that um, there's a lot of controversy about the name because Gruber has far from blessed standard markdown and, uh, and people are claiming that the name sort of co-ops something that, uh, that Gruber uh, created when he created markdown. So, you guys have any, uh, want to chime in? Any, uh, any, what are your guys' opinions on the name? Yeah. Uh, on the concept itself, not, not the name, on the concept, I think it's great. You know, there's been a lot of deviations in Markdown, and everywhere does it differently, so it would be nice to have a standard. I probably wouldn't have noticed originally without, you know, being tweeted every three seconds that the name was ripping off Gruber. Like, it's clearly taking the same name he has. But if they're trying to make a Markdown standard, standard Markdown makes sense to me. But I can also see why he's a bit uh, chafed by this, just considering that their you know fame for this project could be, be just be latching onto the name Markdown and basically taking his hard work and then piggybacking on top of that. So I I guess I guess I I, I can side with the people picking on it, but I wouldn't have noticed it myself. So. Uh... A couple months ago, or I don't know if it was a couple months ago, it was in a previous podcast of the talk show, or a previous episode of the talk show, uh, with Marco Arment was the guest. Um, Gruber uh, said people wanted to 
they he basically said this was going or people were trying to do this and uh he had said if i'm remembering all this correctly and he had said that they can do whatever they want just you can't use my name uh, that's my name that's what i did and markdown's pretty much done as far as i'm concerned if you want to like make a standard or go out and do something else just uh, you know you can do that all you want but you can't use my name and people were you know emailing him or tweeting him and saying hey you know you you don't own markdown anymore because you're not doing anything with it um and he's saying what the hell are you talking about of course i own markdown and it's mine and you can't use the name and then this happens <laughs> like uh, he's kind of fortuitous and uh and, and now rightfully so he's angry about it because he already said you can't use my name that's my name and now they're using his name exactly the way he said not to use his name um so i mean if i were grouper i would be uh, rightfully upset about this as well um the other person who seems most pissed off about this is marco arment and uh he seems more upset than gruber does uh if you followed him on twitter recently he's just a very vocal individual <laughs> you could say that um he he hasn't been uh or he hasn't been shy about having twitter controversy in the last couple weeks anyway but anyway um yeah so i would be upset if i were gruber too regardless of if this makes markdown you know a standard and it makes all parsing reliable. They still obviously did not have the grace of John Gruber, so I still don't think this is uh, the, a good thing uh, for them to have done, and especially what Rob said, how this is just, you know, it's piggybacking on something that's already famous, and if they had made this same thing but called it something else, would it have been as famous? Would it have been as good? Or, or are people just going to use this because it has the Markdown name in it? And... Uh, wrongfully put all their eggs into this basket and then it turns out not to be as good as you know you might think it would be if it didn't have the same name yep and um so i'll add one point what, what sort of was going through my head while you guys were were saying um we're talking about is that so our when rss came or after rss was out adam came out in in sort of a similar way where the people who created Atom were less than happy with some of the decisions about RSS. And I just heard this through a tweet, so I don't know how true it is, but uh, apparently they asked Dave Weiner, the creator of RSS, look, we, we, we want to make this new format, and uh, can we use RSS in, in some way in the name? And Dave Weiner said no, and they did like the classy thing, and that's... Uh, you know, ask the creator and then give it a different name than uh, if, if that's not the creator's wishes, then give it a different name and then try to make it popular on its own merits. And, uh, you know, I think that worked out really well for Adam. I think RSS is, uh, um, you know, it, it's more the brand name and it's more popular, but Adam definitely got widespread support and everything. And so I think that that I, I don't feel like the name is is what, you know, it, whoever ended up winning that, which I don't even think there was a clear winner, but I don't it wasn't the, the name did not mean it didn't end up uh, becoming successful. Um, and so and really the sad thing in all this is that by creating this controversy over the name, now that's what's gotten all the attention instead of the core idea of a standardized markdown, which is really unfortunate. You know, 
And now some people are not going to mind, and they're just going to go ahead and support the new uh, standard markdown. Unfortunately, the people, you know, Gruber's really popular in, in a lot of different circles, and some people are going to shy away from using it because yeah, they, don't, they think that this was um, kind of a lame move on the creator's part. So it's just unfortunate that, uh, that uh, whether it was, it's necessary to standardize Markdown or not, that what people are talking about is not that more interesting idea. It's that people are talking about, well, should they have been, is this, was this a lame move on their part? And uh, should they change the name and all that and all this trivial stuff? Um, any more thoughts on the idea? I, um, so here, let me let me play a counter-argument for a moment, and that's uh, on one of these podcasts where Gruber was talking about this. What he said is that he didn't think doing a formalized spec was necessary because in each implementation, what your requirements are are a little different. Like, for example... Uh, and he also specifically called out GitHub as uh, both having a great name. It's GitHub flavored Markdown, which is uh, um, someone said on Twitter that that sounds like a fork. It doesn't sound like the original branch, which is exactly what it, what it is. And it and also that they they added features that are specialized for coding. You know, like GitHub's GitHub flavors Markdown's core contribution is that it allows inline specify uh, specif more ways to specify a code block and ways to specify the language for a code block. And of course, this is an important feature for people who are um, for GitHub, where it's a site for sharing source code. Now, but then if you contrast that to forum software. You know, like uh, if it's just a discussion forum, why do you need specialized features for specifying the language of a code block? You know, so in a forum, you might a simpler markdown implementation uh, might make more sense. Or for a blog post, you know, you might have uh, footnote support and uh, and not code support. So kind of Gruber's counter argument to we need a spec is that each each site or software or uh, a different product that's using Markdown can choose to implement it in the way that best fits that product. Any responses to that? Um, uh, I think you got it pretty pretty well. I mean, like I said, I, I thought it was a good idea. I don't even, I don't mind there being one standard. Like, like while you might have a forum that doesn't need code blocks, I don't think it hurts having that option in the in the spec itself. Like, and I, and I do agree that GitHub flavored Markdown is something that stands out to me, and that's like Markdown, like I'm aware of the differences and the name. You know, I, I know it's not the core Markdown. Uh, yeah, but I, I, don't, I wouldn't mind everyone having the same one, even if it's not directly needed by them. Uh, so for me, actually, I, I am against Gruber on this and that... Um the different implementations of Markdown have been dra dragging me absolutely up the wall. Um, so, for example, like TextMate, the text editor has my favorite built-in Markdown support, but it doesn't support fence code blocks. Um, so, you know, so I don't use fence code blocks, whereas I, I, I would like to have TextMate support them. Um, another example is I, I was trying to set up a blog with Jekyll, 
and I couldn't find a markdown par parser that both had sint uh, a supported syntax for fence code blocks and for footnotes. You know, I found one that worked uh, well with uh, fence code blocks but not footnotes and one that works well with footnotes but not fence code blocks. So for me, it's kind of like I'm, I, every time I know uh, I'm using a markdown text field, it seems like a different set of features are supported. So I think um, while I, I think Gruber put his point really eloquently, for me personally, this was kind of driving me up the wall, is that like I just want to know what are the features of Markdown and have them supported everywhere. And for me personally, for purely selfish reasons, since I, I work as a programmer, like I want Ben's code block in the language in every place I'm using it so that I can uh, take advantage of that feature. So they should have just called it standard flavored Markdown. Definitely. Yeah. And the grouper would have been fine. I think so too. Yep. Yep. I, I think, you know, I think really... Yeah, you know, some derivation, you know, there's one called like cram down, like one of these rhymes or puns would have been more appropriate. And, you know, standard markdown is almost like insulting, you know, it's like, it's almost like, uh, since you weren't willing to do this, we'll do this, you know, and when you start, if you're named after a negative sentiment, you know, then you're you're already getting off on a bad foot. And there, there are ways that they could have focused on uh uh, making it more positive and making it like there's a, there's almost like a backhandedness to the tone of standard markdown. What about uh what about markdowncast? Love it. <laughs> <laughs> because it, yeah, every everybody everybody loves uh uh when Marco blows his top on Twitter. So <laughs> that's my it's my only motivation for that name. Okay, anyone uh want to add anything else on on standard markdown? So now we're going to go into some coding topics. Um, so, so if you're not a coding nerd, just skip ahead. Yeah, you might as well, you, you might as well just, just drop <laughs> out now. But you probably weren't weren't uh, weren't listening otherwise anyway. Uh, but yeah, we're going we're going deep here, deeper than. Um, some of the more uh, the Mac centric podcasts go. Um, so, in when you're writing a function in a programming language, uh, usually er, it, some functions return a certain value, and all functions return at some point. Um, sometimes you don't have to specify where it returns, and it, it won't return a value, and it won't. Uh, um, and it'll just return at the end of the function declaration. Um, but you can also, uh, when a function is returning a value, you can re explicitly say return and then uh, return a number or a string or whatever you're returning. Now, in most languages, you can have multiple return statements in one function. So you could... Uh, and what, what we're going to talk about here is returning early. So, for example, you could, if somebody says, if you're, someone's inputting a string and your function reverses that string, you could have as your first statement in the function, does the string exist? And uh, if it doesn't exist, you could just uh, return nothing or, or, uh, or, or do an error and then return nothing. Um, 
or if your string is only one letter and you have a whole algorithm for reversing the string, if it's one letter, if it's the reverse is uh, still going to be one letter. So you can just detect, well, is it one letter? And if so, return. Now, return that one letter. Now, the other way to structure that is to say, um, is to have one return statement at the end. Um, and so then in the case I was describing, you would then have the actual algorithm to return ha after those statements, and then it would process the string, reverse it, and then return the reverse string. Now, another way to structure the function to handle all those cases is to first uh, perhaps set the string to an empty string, and then determine, well, is there a string? And if so, process the string and then set it to the reverse string and then return that value. And that'll handle both the empty string case because we, we set it to an empty string in the beginning and then, um, and then only do the function call that reverses it if there's actually uh, enough characters to uh, reverse the string. And then you have only one return statement at the end. So the conversation is about pros and cons of, of each of these approaches to structuring a function. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, so this is like, a, you know, mostly directed at me because me and or Robin and I have had this conversation. Um, so Robin is of the persuasion to return early and often. Yes. Yep. Okay. So, and I am of the persuasion and I have been for a while to minimize the number of returns in a method or function, uh, preferably limited to one at the end, and so you have a single exit function. Um, I am wholly not opposed to returning early at the beginning of a function if you have an error condition or, like Robin's uh, example there, a one-character string for a reversal algorithm. I don't find re returning early there uh, a problem. Um, Otherwise, uh, after the early return for error or uh, a known simple condition, uh, I don't believe there should be any more return statements within your function except for an exit return. And uh, here are just a few of the reasons why I think that. Um, and I did research. So anyway, <laughs> first of all, uh, MISRA promotes single exit function, and MISRA is the Motor Industry Software Reliability Association. They're like this big C, C++ uh, like guidelines organization, um, and they promote single exit functions for code clarity uh, and uh, and refactorability. Um, breakpoint breakpoint uh, insertions uh, in a debugger is very useful. If you just have one single exit, uh, you can put your breakpoint right at the end and see what you're going to return instead of having uh, maybe a bunch of breakpoints within your function. Uh, so just makes your life easier. Uh, hold on. Uh... I'll just address that one quickly. You can just put a breakpoint on the calling method and see the value that's returned in that case. Fair enough. Um, you can put an assert at the end of your function for a single exit function, so you can assert for uh, post conditions of your method um, instead of having this, uh, like an assert everywhere you're returning. That's the same same thing. You can put the assert right after you re return. Uh, well, maybe you want to encapsulate it. But uh, so the uh, so the biggest thing here, and I. Think me or Robin and I will agree is if you have let's just consider you have a bigger method than something that takes a string and reverses it. So if you have a if you have a method that takes a string and reverses it, that's a pretty simple algorithm. You can have an early return and then 
I would imagine just one return after that. It's a pretty simple thing. Definitely. And I'd imagine Robin would even agree with me. He would maybe have an early return and then one return at the end. So if you have code in a function or a method that requires you to have possibly two plus returns after an early return at the top of your method, I would argue that your method is probably too big and you should factor out or refactor out that code into smaller functions, which then in return, maybe we'll have one return, one exit from that method. Uh, so then in return, uh, no pun intended, you then collapse your big uh, method that has multiple return values into a smaller method that has one return value. Um, and I think Robin would agree that that is a better way to do things because then you have smaller functional uh, methods and functions that do very specific things and are easier to understand and then have only one exit uh, from those methods. So, I mean, that's that's my stance on the whole thing. Uh, I don't like lots of returns, and if I can, I'll make the function smaller if possible to limit those returns. But if it still has to be big, I would still disagree with anyone who says you just have multiple returns. Um, that's that's my entire stance on the whole thing. Yeah, I think I think I agree with all of that. Um, and uh, so, you know, like all this, it, and it's interesting because I kept thinking when you were saying um, minimize the number of returns, like less returns is better. <laughs> Um, but though, and and I actually think, you know, while I phrase it as, uh, I, I you know, I sometimes people talk about return early, turn often as a that's sort of a catchphrase for uh, a, a certain approach, and I sort of say to do that, but I don't really actually say to do that because I think that's the best way to uh, to capture the idea. It's more I say that because I think that. I see more code that should be returning early than vice versa. Um, so really, it's more like, uh, you know, I'm like, man, you know, when I see a function that has, a, a, oftentimes I see a function that could be made clearer by returning early. So I sort of promote that idea um, partially just because it seems like, it seems like there are some people who are, like sort of will jump through hoops in order to make there be only one return statement. And I think we'd both agree that, that that's uh, not the best approach. And so more what I would really say is like, you know, returning is a, you know, how I really think about it for myself is returning is a, uh, it's a tool in your toolbox. And I think that there is, there are some people who are dogmatic about, um, you should only have one return statement, whereas I am more uh, pragmatic in that, well, if I feel like returning early, if that's going to help me make this method clearer, um, then that's uh, then I'm absolutely going to use it. Um, and I, I'll do just a couple more pitch points on returning early. Um, so the, the things that I like about it, and I think that make it assist in readability is um, oftentimes, and I think we are both in agreement on this, is that it allows you to uh, deal with your error cases and your strange cases right at the beginning. Like in our reversing a string example, you know, someone passing in an empty string, that's just a weird case, you know, and, and someone passing in one, one letter, that's a weird case too. And really like the function, the, 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 
Um, the problem that this the method is really there to solve is when you do a multi-character string. And that's where you're going to have the little algorithm that does the reverse and everything. That's like the meat of the method. And when you have, when you're dealing with these cases that are really like edge cases in the meat of the method, that distracts from like the purpose of that method. So if you can... Uh, if you can deal with those cases as early as possible and just not have to deal with them in your actual algorithm, it sort of brings out the meaning and kind of crystallizes the meaning of the, the algorithm that that function is really there to, to solve. Um, so that's my main reason I like uh, returning early. And then the other one is that if you, once you return a value, instead of setting it to a variable that you then return later, you never have to worry that some other part of that code is going to later um, make changes to that value. You know, like let's say that uh, you are again with the reversing the string example, you've stored the value in a variable that says like string reversed and it's string reversed a. And then even if you think in your head that the rest of the algorithm is just going to leave that alone and, and interpret it correctly or whatever, you know, you have to, and maybe like, uh, maybe the next statement is if uh, your string is greater than one character, do all this stuff. Um, and so you're, you're sure that, uh, um, you ha but you have to be sure that that character the variable is going to make it through the rest of the function untouched and then to be safely returned with the right value. Whereas if you know you have the right value, if you just put the return statement there, then you don't even have to worry about if there's code later that uh, uh, could touch it. Um, but at the end of the day, I agree that, uh, you know, almost always if you have multiple return statements and they're not just right at the beginning to deal with really simple error cases, that's almost always because the, the method itself should be refactored into smaller code blocks. And, uh, and it's always preferable. You know, those error cases are often stuff where, you know, I wish this stuff, I didn't have to deal with that stuff. And uh, like really, I, you know, you want the function to be the tight little algorithm and then returning the resultant value with one return at the end. I mean, um, so the, and that's really what you want the function to be. But, uh, you know, in a perfect, everybody who programs knows it's, uh, it's uh, as much making sausages as it is science. Well, then I guess we're in agreement on that. Uh, I thought we would be arguing more. <laughs> I, I think at, at the end of the day, it's just slants. Yeah. You know, I think you're slanted a little bit more towards one return as being the more important part, and I'm slanted uh, a little more towards... Uh, um, I probably return early more often than you. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Yeah. So the only other thing I'll say about this is, when you have these larger functions, and let's say for whatever reason you can't break this up into a several smaller functions, um, multiple returns within a larger function, I think, personally, makes it unreadable and much more confusing to look at. Uh, so I would still, I would, at that point, even after you said, you know, you can't guarantee something's not going to get touched later on um, and stuff like that, I would still argue that one return is better at that point just because it's more readable. And that, maybe that's just my brain and not your brain, but uh, there are people who go both ways. 
Um, or there are people, or there are people who go one way and there are people who go the other way. And there's some on my side and there's some on the multiple returns, uh, in every, in sing, excuse me. And there are some people for multiple returns in a function. And I did research before the show and, uh, it seems overwhelming majority of people love to return lots of times in a function. Uh, the last time I, uh, you know, thought about this, it was the overwhelming majority was one return for a function. So I don't know what happened. Uh, it must be people like you, Robin, uh, if infiltrated the computer science world. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so even if you have a large function that for any reason you can't break up, I'd still say at that point, I would say a single return exit from a function is better for me because it is more readable. And I think more readable to other people, obviously not to everyone, like you said, because you would probably return early there. Um, but that's just my opinion on that last bit. Yep. Uh, anything to add, Rob? Any thoughts? I'm probably right between both of you. Like, you guys are both slightly leaning. I, I do both. Uh, I will return early. Normally the cases of asserts or, you know, it, it reminds me of, like, writing a uh, really simple recursion uh function that like does factorial or something where you have a bunch of returns earlier that are like well if my number is one then do this else if it's you know if it's negative you know you have all these like cases you want to check first and then when all your cases succeed or you know when all your base cases are passed then you go into the meat of what you're doing and that's generally how i write it so i will have a return for each you know trivial case and then i will have one return for the meat of my function and that's generally the way I go with that. Yeah, I think that's definitely the, the ideal model. I think it sounds like all three of us are, are in agreement on that. We need a more controversial topic so we can fight. Yeah, yeah. I'm just kidding. I don't care. I'm not. <laughs> nice. Another interesting topic to bring up that may or may not hit the world big time soon is that um, it seems like in... 10.10 Yosemite that while AppleScript will still exist, it seems like alongside that you're going to be able to access the same APIs that AppleScript can access with JavaScript. And so what that means is so when you're designing an OS 10 application, you can sort of expose certain functions in your application to AppleScript, and then a um, so, and then the the AppleScript editor can read a plist that you supply with your application, and that says which functions in your application are open to be used by AppleScript, and then AppleScript can call those functions. And these are commonly like uh, like a to do list manager might provide an AppleScript API to add a to do item. Um, so one I've, I've written before, although I don't use it now, is to take a mail message because mail provides an API to get a mail message. Um, so you can get its contents, its uh, the sender and all that, and then make a to-do item out of that. That's the type of uh, problem that AppleScript solves. Oftentimes, uh, inter-application communication and another big one is, um, is adding features to the application that might not exist. Um, like uh, like OmniFocus doesn't have a a way to mark a uh, 
item as due today, which is a common thing I, I like to do. So I have, I have my own hotkey that fires my own Apple script to set the due date of that item to today. Um, so formally, the or as of 10.9, uh, you can only access these APIs with AppleScript, and AppleScript is a, a really difficult language to work with because it, it has like an English, first of all, it has an English-like syntax, which is something that sounds uh, better in theory than practice. So you think, say things like, uh, like tell application to add new to-do item X, and that seems good in, in when you when you say it out like that, but in reality, it's uh, it's actually really difficult to figure out. Uh, you know, writing the just right English sentence feels like magic with AppleScript, and it's really hard to figure out. Um, and so, and then the other, the flip side of that is nobody knows how to uh, you know nobody knows how to write AppleScript. You know, except for people who cared so much about interaction inner application communication that they they learned it which is they learned to use this like painful language so the fact that all of a sudden you're going to be able to use javascript to access these apis which not only is like a, a programming language that's been around for uh um a really long time and and uh um and sort of proven it's, you know, you can write a whole application in JavaScript. Nobody's written any applications in AppleScript, you know. So it's like, it's like a, a programming language. Who, and I said it's been around a long time, but it's actually, we're obviously in a JavaScript renaissance now. And sort of it's, it's only in recent times that it's uh, um, been the type of application that you would write a whole text editor. Like, uh, like in the case of Atom, uh, it's, most of its functionality is, is written in CoffeeScript, but... Um, is, is written in that compiles down into JavaScript, um, and it's definitely a, you know it's taken seriously as a language now. So all of a sudden, not only are we you're going to be able to write a an application in sort of an industrial strength programming language, but it's also one of the most widely known programming languages. Um, so you know the, I, it's I'm sure it's one of the top two or three languages on. Uh, on GitHub, for example, and one of the top two or three languages known by uh, developers in the world. Um, so, so that's yeah. I think that's really interesting. I uh, um, and I'm curious what's gonna what's gonna happen with that. Um, uh, any uh, any any comments? Uh, yeah, I think it's a really cool thing that JavaScript may be replacing AppleScript as a you know, maybe either the primary, the only, or at least an alternative language for scripting on your Mac. I think Java, like you said, JavaScript is a much more well-known language, and I think it might get more people actually writing scripts rather than the current state right now, where I don't write them because I, I don't really Apple script. So I think that's a, a great change. What about you, Matt? Um, I am so far out of the world of apple script i've never even looked at an apple script uh file i have no opinion on this whatsoever um i think swift should replace both javascript and AppleScript. <laughs> that's my opinion well I, I i was actually gonna go there next yeah uh, uh, where this conversation all started yeah. it started with you know javascript as being replacing apple script but, but then what why would why couldn't swift replace Apple yeah, script. yeah, exactly. That's the only opinion I have on this. Sorry. If, if Apple basically releases Swift, or Apple has released Swift, and they have all of this 
control over it that they didn't have over they don't they don't control javascript and they controlled apple script in a similar way it seems if swift is what they're putting their basket like if this yeah. if swift is the basket they are putting all their eggs into it would make sense to me that they also open up their apis for you know mac automate automation into swift or for swift and that basically opens up so many more little parallel tr- like tracks in my head of what they can possibly do with swift so i think it's a but really cool is thing apple putting all their eggs into the swift basket i mean i think i think ios is a very 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 large percentage of apple's eggs and i think if they have gone four or five years of developing swift that's putting quite a lot of faith into it how long did they develop apple script for i have no idea is it actively developed? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Then, then I don't think. Uh, then I don't. I don't see why they would replace Apple Script with Swift. Then. Oh wait, wait, wait! Is Apple Script in continued development now? Like, are they like? Is Apple supporting this? Are they still actively working on it? No. It, it's every every release. People get a little worried about people who write Apple Scripts about what is going to end up broken and what's going to end up working. It it seems like. What I would describe it as Apple sort of drags it along uh, begrudgingly. <laughs> okay. You know, they oftentimes will break it in a significant release, like a, uh, uh, you know, like going from something like three or four of an application, uh, like pages, will all of a sudden all the scripts will break, but then maybe by, uh, you know, 4.1, it'll most of the features will then be working again, but it's clearly not a priority. (laughs) And rarely do, you know, in some applications uh, have zero AppleScript support, like like notes and uh, reminders, I don't think have any AppleScript support. Um, And obviously no coincidence that those are more recent applications added to the platform. so, yeah, I mean, I think a really interesting question here is, let's say, like, okay, you understand um, that, uh, you know, what Apple was going for with AppleScript. They're like, oh, wouldn't it be great if people could just write out their programs in plain English and then, uh, quote, unquote, mom and pop would be able to uh, to customize their own software and write their own automation scripts and all that. But we knew that wasn't going to work back in, you know, it's, it's, I assume Apple script was around in 1995 and they knew almost immediately that that was a pipe dream and it did not work out that way. And it was still only programmers that, uh, could write Apple scripts and, uh, they just didn't like writing in it. (laughs) Um, so if you can do it in, so that's why Apple script was the language chosen for this. But if you, then if they're changing it to JavaScript, like why not just Swift? And I actually have the question like right now, it's not clear to me right now whether I could write an Objective-C application that then access the same uh, APIs that AppleScript provides. You know, like uh, that seems like it should be possible. And if that's possible, then... um, then Swift. I mean, so it sort of made sense for Apple uh, for uh, Objective C. Um, you know, Objective C versus JavaScript because Objective C is like, and it's hard. It's really a compiled language. You know, you in order to just get your environment up and running, you have to import frameworks and all this stuff, and then you have to compile a binary and then run it. If you just want to write a quick little script to customize applications, that just feels like over kill and interpreted language like javascript is more appropriate 
but Swift has all these features of an interpreted language. Like there's, you, you don't have to set up classes and all that stuff. You know, there, hello world is one line in Swift and, um, and it has its own uh, shebang and everything. I don't know if that, so that means that like, like uh, you can specify a plain text file to be interpreted by, uh, by the Swift binary and then just run that from the command line, whereas uh, you would have to compile and run that uh, in more complicated steps if it were Objective-C. Um, so if Swift has all these features, like why even make it JavaScript? Like why, why not just go whole hog in with Swift? I, I think that's a really interesting idea. And I, I actually wonder if when Yosemite comes out, like, can you access these APIs with Swift? Uh, Do you think a lot of it was just that a different team decided to move to JavaScript than the team who was knowledgeable about Swift being created? I think that's a pretty, uh, a pretty interesting theory. Uh, although, you know, I feel like those, I, I feel like that, uh, that would be information hiding from the wrong teams you know what i mean like i feel like those two teams like someone would would find out that both those things would happen and be like yeah you those two teams should probably talk to each other um at the same time it's not a bad theory i'm yeah i'm not sure um yeah any any anything else on, on swift apple script javascript no um so another question that was brought up in the same conversation between rob and i is well, especially in the context of this iCloud leak, you know, Apple has continued to have problems with their cloud services. Um, they're having a lot. Yeah. They actually, they actually said it wasn't their problem in the end. Okay. Yeah. Regardless, you know, that was just yeah. an, an example. Um, it's sort of an ongoing thing. You know, a conical example is probably the the problems getting core data. Uh, uh, what what is the name of the that group of services? Do we just call it iCloud? What's the yeah, yeah. Uh, the iCloud services, especially their developer APIs, have continually had problems, um, and uh, and you know they've just been slow to offer um, like com competing cloud services to things like Dropbox. There are certain features on the platform that they just businesses that it makes sense for Apple to be in, and they've been really slow to uh, to join those and. Uh, you know, there's all, all people always talk about how a lot of Apple's web code is written in this web object language, which I think is a derivative of Objective C, but it's uh, actually Java. Java. Isn't it? Yeah, I think it's. It was originally. It was. I think it was originally Objective C, and then it became Java. I think so. I think you develop it in like Eclipse yeah. and everything, and that's. Yeah, so let's call it the two-headed stepchild of Objective C and Java. I think it's something like <laughs> sure. that. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, I, I don't know how they even get someone up and running on, on that language, but A, it's probably, um, you know, there's not many people who, who know it, uh, and B, it's, you know, unless they've been updating it continuously, you know, the web frameworks is our, you know, that's one of the fastest changing areas there is right now and um the, the well just think yeah. about what's come out since web objects was well, going to say too. that's the thing web object is what 10, yeah. 10 plus the, years the last stable release of web objects was uh, september in 2008 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so but even but exactly they that. may have been develop continue to develop internally. That's sort of what I'm saying is even if they've been into in developing it internally, they're not developing it at the same rate that the web frameworks externally are advancing. Like that would be. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you if you think about it, when they created web objects, it was probably you know struts or probably not even struts at the time, just Java. You know, you know, for websites. Yep. PHP or or nothing. So they're like, oh, web objects will be better than that. Yep. And then you know. What 2006-ish, Rails came out, Django came out. You know, a couple of years after that, you know, Node popularized. So it's yeah. a lot has changed since they made the decision to go web objects. Yeah, exactly. And so I think there's two interesting conversations here. One is if Apple had to use one of the, if they switched to one of the web languages out there now, languages and frameworks, which one do you guys think they would pick? That's a, that's a hard one. So, so uh, I'll, I'll start out by listing the options. There's, there's uh, um, Django and Python. There's uh, Node and one of the many frameworks. And there's um, Ruby on Rails uh, with Ruby. Apple does have a lot invested in JavaScript, so I, I think that would be an interesting language for them because um, obviously, uh, you know, Safari and uh, its JavaScript engine are is like the triple A front-facing feature of iOS and OS X. Um, and now they're extending JavaScript to the rest of the OS, so doing something Node would be interesting for them. Um, and then, uh, so Rob was saying that Ruby maybe fits their philosophy and it being, uh, um, uh, you know, the Ruby on Rails world in particular are convention over configuration. Um, very opinionated group and us Cocoa developers also, it's pretty much do it the way Apple does it. And that's kind of different from other languages or more severe than other languages. Definitely. Um, and do you have any comments on Python and Django? I, I don't know those very well, so I don't feel I can comment. I mean, uh, I don't know how that would fit into Apple's world. I don't, you, you, positive or negative. You yeah. know, I, I like Django. I think it's nice, but who knows if that's uh, Apple's cup of tea. And Matt, PHP? Uh, the only thing I would say is I don't think Apple would go Node. Uh, it just seems too new and too, uh, I want to say the word hippie, uh, but I don't think that's the correct word. Do you mean hipster I, No, hippie, <laughs> hippie is the word I was going for there. Uh, it's too hippie. Um, for I, know, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so. I, 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 I think that's a good way of putting it. I actually think Ruby on Rails is a little too hippie, too. Well, I was going to say the only reason Ruby on Rails feels right to me is and I'm backing up to Objective C here, but Objective C and Ruby have uh, common ancestors, and that's kind of the only reason I would say Apple might choose Ruby. Um, beyond that, they should go with PHP. I feel like I need a why not Zoidberg meme here, but why not Swift? Why not? Yeah, well, I mean, take take their web objects goal and basically make some framework for Swift on the server side. So you look the ancestors of uh, both Ruby and Objective C. Um, and then you look at their ancestors, Swift is common between them as well. So that is a very, uh, a, a way you could jump to that and say Swift could be used as a, a, a web backend language. Yeah. 
I mean, so you have JavaScript, right? You have people who were writing client-side JavaScript for many years and know no other way around it. And then they basically allow JavaScript on the server, which is great. And people push the point, hey, now I can write my JavaScript on this client side and the server side. Have to only know one language, and it's much easier to ramp up on a language. That sounds cool. And now Apple released a Swift language that's on the client side, which is great. You know, we have this new language. You know, it has all these improvements over Objective C. You know, definitely going to take some ramping up time. But once we know it, that'll be a great language to learn. And then they're like, they basically also release. You know, um, what, what was it just released? Uh, CloudKit, which is basically, you don't actually have to write server-side code. You know, we'll do it for you. You know, plug into these common APIs, and it'll be really awesome. But in the situation you do want to write server-side code, that is a very, very different skill set, and basically, or and it's going to be a different language you write it in. So it would be cool if you could take that server-side code and write it in Swift in such a way that maybe you only have to know one language, but two different frameworks, at least. You know, Cocoa and whatever they choose for the web. I think that's a, a fun spin and, you know, maybe a, a fun future, but who knows? And here's the thing, like, so in order for it to be picked on the web, you need frameworks. And that's sort of the, uh, you know, would Apple release a web framework? I mean, Apple's proven to be very, very, very good framework creators in Cocoa. You know, no one knows if they can make that actually into a scalable web framework. But And what would be... What does Apple have to gain by making a web framework and popularizing it in Swift? More people locked into a language they create and control. Potentially that you know they could say this this is where it gets a little a little shakier. Right now, you know, Swift is a OS ten only or at least a Mac hardware only thing. So they could say we're also releasing these servers or at least these cloud services where we can host our Swift code and then basically benefit from the hardware sales. But that might not be the direction they go in. Maybe they say you know, Swift will run on any uh, any hardware, and what's the benefit then for them? Their mobile developers can more easily stand up web services and make more robust apps. I mean, that's the best I have for that. The only question, the only question left is: if they made a framework for Swift for the web, what would you name it? Do we want to do that real-time follow-up with Gruber and? Uh... Markdown. They changed their name to Common Markdown. Well, Gruber, Gruber said Gruber told them they should rename the project, shut down standardmarkdown.com, and apologize. So they have publicly apologized now. They're shutting down standardmarkdown.com, and they renamed the project to Common Markdown. But here's the thing: Gruber gave them a list of things he might accept as names, and one of them was Strict Markdown. Or pedantic markdown, uh-huh. and they replied back with looks like six uh, rebuttals, and he had they haven't heard back, so uh, they just went with common markdown. But they replied with compatible markdown, regular markdown, community markdown, common markdown, uniform markdown, and vanilla markdown. I like vanilla markdown. Um, but yeah, so they've publicly apologized also in this blog. They're saying, John, we're deeply sorry. It's our fault. We want to fix it, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. That's the real-time follow-up. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, this is what we're talking about. Um, wow. So, well, I just said uh, it, so... <laughs> yeah. So Matt just summarized it. I, I, what do you, first off the top of your head, what do you guys, what do you guys think? Find it hilarious. 
<laughs> Groover just makes me laugh. <laughs> well, apparently... Maybe maybe you can call it Strickmark, then. Change it and we'll, well see. So, that's, that's the way I... So the I other part, I, was, I read most of it, and apparently they've been... Uh, according to this blog post, they've been they've been doing standard markdown for they've been developing it for two years now, and uh, they emailed Gruber apparently a while ago and asked them, "Can we use this name?" And he never replied. So they assumed either he didn't care or he was okay with it. Uh, and then they referenced the episode of the talk show that I was talking about earlier, where he was actually the one you were talking about, Robin, which I think is the exact same episode where they where he referenced GitHub flavor markdown. And uh, so they thought it was okay. Uh, so they actually said what I said, standard flavored markdown uh, in this blog post. Uh, and, he, and they kept that as the title of the posts. But they didn't want another yet another flavor of markdown. So that's why they didn't go with standard flavored markdown. <laughs> anyway, that's yeah. all. It's funny. Yeah. This is interesting because, you know, like the, the first question that comes to my mind is, is this, this a good move for the success of the project? Um, and part, sort of the problem with where it stands now from my just skimming this is they've changed a name and they've apologized but their current name does not have John Gruber's blessing. You know, they don't, they, so they've apologized, but what have they gained from it? Because if they still don't have his blessing, then. Yeah, it seems they jumped the gun on uh, trying to fix the situation. I think they, they had, they thought they had too much heat and they had to just do something quickly, but apparently Gruber is not one to act quickly in this situation. <laughs> Yeah, and what's his incentive to act quickly? Exactly, you know, that's a good since, point. Since he's since he's not uh, um, uh, since he doesn't think this whole process is necessary, <laughs> um, you know he you know and uh, they've already it's sort of going the way that if if he's offended by the name, it's going the way that he wants it to by. Uh, um, the focus being around the name and uh, and them getting a lot of negative feedback because of the name and what's his incentive to act quickly and help them work this out? It would only it would only make sense to him if he really wanted this project to succeed. Um, man, I I think common markdown. I think they just named it too quickly. I, I feel like I feel like the spirit of this could be helpful. Um, I I actually I actually think pedantic markdown is not bad, <laughs> in that it 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 would put a humorous spin on the whole incident, you know. And that's sort of like Gruber's one of the points he's often made is like, you know, one of the things that annoys him about working out a spec is people are like, well, how is it supposed to render if you put, like, asterisk, space, asterisk, asterisk, space, asterisk? And Gruber's like, well, why would you ever do that? And I don't care what that looks like, because that's just a stupid thing to write into your rendering engine. Um, so pedantic markdown is sort of a nice, uh, you know, I think that that has a humor to it, and it's one of the ones, you know, also that he uh, he approved, you know, Um but really, I think the safer bet here would have been to say, we apologize, um, uh, 
give it a uh, uh, an interim name, you know, just something that says, uh, uh, you know, we're sorting it out uh, flavored markdown. <laughs> and then say uh, we're gonna come up with a new name and rename the project and and stick to the apology angle which is uh, uh, not bad I don't know I'm kind of talking uh, making my PR suggestions off the top of my head uh, what do you guys think I think uh, I think it's just funny funny follow-up and uh, they they definitely should have taken their time with the name uh, they should have put this apology out there exactly what you said just some temporary name and then waited for Gruber's approval on some new name because uh, now we, you could have the exact same backlash here you know you might see that or Gruber might see oh they're apologetic but if he doesn't like the name it's you know you're still going to have the, the problems you had before so it's it's humorous and then what are you going to have a third rename what are we talking about Hydra yeah I, yeah maybe call it Mjolnir <laughs> that's what I would do <laughs> um Another interesting bit that um, has been going around and I don't think we brought up is that if you go to uh, daringfireball.net and you you go to the markdown page, uh, it's released with a license and uh, the license lists, he calls it a markdown is free software available under a BSD style open source license. which I think is uh, means that you can reuse and sell it in uh, um, add it to your application and all this um, a- as much as you want as long as you make the source code and the uh, license itself available. Uh, but then the interesting bit is that it explicitly says he has several additional restrictions mainly around um, oh, that's not initially true. Anyway, I'm just going to read the important bullet point it says neither the name markdown nor the names of its contributors may be used to endorse or promote products derived from this software without specific prior written permission so yeah that's interesting um yeah so this is a uh, it's a product I, i'm not sure I, when i read this language what it kind of seems to mean to me is you shouldn't call it like a markdown editor you know if you're selling a text editor you shouldn't call it a markdown editor um i i'm not sure though i, I actually don't explicitly uh know how to legally interpret this but um it's certainly not it's another thing that uh this new markdown project is gonna have to be concerned with is what the the legal implications of that are Especially if he's really angry at you. <laughs> anyway, so that's real time follow up. So, I got a new domain name. And, uh, like I said, this is going to be short, but it's uh, it's mattg.xyz. And that's my new email, is matt at mattg.xyz. And it rhymes. That's all I have to say. I noticed. That's all I have to say. I noticed. There's no. E- there's no. Uh, there's nothing up there. It's just that's my email. Yeah. Some somebody has mad at X Y Z. Yes. <laughs> Bastard. God damn it. And that doesn't. That doesn't rhyme. It's yeah, exactly. Matt G dot X Y Z. Did you try Matt dot Uh. Well, X Y Zs were on sale for five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you got a bargain basement uh, and, URL. Uh, <laughs> And dot IOs. How much are the IOs? 
I think IOs don't have privacy, and it's like seventy bucks. So. Ooh! Wow! I didn't know it's that much. Yeah. Wow. It's only the five dollar right. X Y Z name. Yeah. Well, I don't hate it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it's no developing day. <laughs> and. Uh, uh, it, well, it's just going to forward eventually to MatthewGamble.com, so. Which also doesn't have anything right now either, so. Wait, so you own MatthewGamble.com? Yeah, I also have Matthew at MatthewGamble.com for an email address. Matt at MadG.xyz actually forwards to Matthew, Ga- Matthew at MatthewGamble.com. So. So why were you adding a new URL in the first place if you already have your name.com? Uh, I want a shorter one. So when I'm at, like, trying to tell people my email address is mgamble at gmail.com is, I hate it because I have to spell it out every time. So if I can just say, yeah. if I'm at the bank and I can just be like matt at mattg.xyz, it's simple. You can't misspell that. And I'm done. And, yeah. uh, you know. But then you're going to be, you're going to be, they're going to say... Wait, wait, Matt G at it. Because then they're going to be like, uh, did I hear that right? Because <laughs> <laughs> it sounds a little bit like you're making a joke. And not bad, though. I, I mean, I think, um, I think we're going to need some follow-up on this after you've, uh, you've uh, uh, put it out there a little bit. Yeah, I haven't, uh, I haven't even moved any of my email to it yet. Um, but, uh, but I have. I do own it. And it's, it's ready. It's ready for all the email. Sounds great. Cool. Yeah. So everyone who uh, wants to agree or disagree with Matt, you can reach him at Matt at MattG.xyz. Can't even remember it. <laughs> dot com now. Well, no. this is this is uh, yeah. That's that's partially just me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll put you. I did re- that's about that's about as fast as remembering things gets for me. <laughs> don't worry. We'll put uh, Robin and Rob's email up in the show notes too. Please don't. Well, if we're editing this out, I just want to say we forgot to clap at the beginning. Oh, snap. So, should we, uh, should we talk about filing bugs with Apple? How does that sound? Eh. All right. And Matt, PHP? Uh, Gross.